When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Save big on Brunch for Mom, all in the Kroger app. Get half gallons of delicious Kroger milk for $1.29 each. Then get flavorful Tyson Natural Boneless Chicken Breasts for two forty nine dollars a pound, all with your card and a digital coupon. Shop these deals at your local Kroger today. Or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details. Welcome to the Your Village podcast, Parenting Beyond Discipline. Your Village is the most comprehensive site for evidence-based parenting classes available on demand at yourvillageonline.com. Our 50 plus classes give parents the foundation, steps, and tools for creating strong, healthy relationships with their children, resulting in responsible, cooperative, happy, and successful children and families. My goal is to help parents support their children in finding and reaching their own unique potential. The podcast is a place to learn about all things parenting and get your questions answered. I'm your village founder and your host, Erin Royer. Hello, everyone. Okay, so this is the final episode of the three-part series on parenting styles. I find this information fascinating, how parenting has evolved and will continue to evolve for two reasons. One is the more we learn about child development and motivational psychology, the more we can incorporate that into our parenting. And number two, because the job of the parent is to prepare our children to be successful in the society and culture in which they are raised. So of course, this is going to look different over time as society evolves. As I discussed in the first episode, two episodes ago, parents in the 1800s were preparing their kids to take over their same socioeconomic roles in society. Now there was some movement in status, but it was very rare. Even in the 1950s, parents were preparing their kids the same way. Adults were expected to take a job and stay in it for life. So whether in a factory or in management or any other job, as depressing as that sounds to me and hopefully to you as well, there was no need to raise kids to find their deeper interest, their deeper purpose, or follow their heart. And you'll see this in parenting all over the board today in regards to that still. And actually, you know what, that's another great episode. So I just added that to my list. Do we teach our kids to follow their passion, to follow their heart. Is that realistic? If so, how would we do that? But quickly, in next week's episode, I'm going to debunk five parenting myths that are actually harmful to both us as parents and to our children. So we're gonna go through those. But back to this week's episode. As I've covered in these past few episodes, parenting styles are the backbone for the environment we set up in our homes. The communication, the discipline we use, the expectations we have, and how we set those boundaries and with what feeling and attitude we set them with is based on our parenting style. And as I mentioned, we're all a mix of parenting styles. We fall predominantly into one style, but everyone exhibits traits from several styles at differing times. 
And I talked about that more in the first episode. So if you're interested in more of that and how to realign yourself with your more core parenting style, if you find yourself getting off balance or too far into one direction or another, um, that I covered that in the first episode. I also covered the four initial parenting styles that were studied back in the 1960s and their outcomes in that first episode. And since then, new styles have risen, some have fallen. Last week, I covered a style that rose in popularity in the 1990s and early 2000s. Today, I'm going to discuss six other parenting styles. Yes, I cover these quicker because there's so much overlap with the styles I've already covered of the modern styles. So I will be able to move through these more quickly. So I'm going to start with the slow parenting movement, also known as simplicity parenting. Now, this arose as a response to the helicopter parenting, which I covered in last week's episode. The goal in slow parenting is allowing children to be happy and satisfied with their own achievements and allowing them to discover who they are, their intrinsic likes, dislikes, interests, and talents. Children are encouraged and given opportunities to explore the world at their own pace instead of filling their schedule with a lot of activities. Slow parenting movement has recommendations for play, toys, access to nature, and as I've already mentioned, scheduling. Slow parenting advocates for play and sees play as central to childhood, which does actually fall in line with child development research and what us child development experts really are advocating for. And this has been showing in the research for decades that play is central to learning and development. The movement also advocates for no to very little screen time. Quality family time is also emphasized. So although I'd never heard of the term slow parenting before I started doing this research, my own research over the years with the classes that I provide and therefore my own philosophy and my parenting and what I work with other parents on actually does overlap quite a bit with this parenting style. Uh, the class Choosing a Preschool discusses the importance of play and play-based learning and all the ways that it helps kids just absolutely explode in their learning and their development through play and how to find a school that has a solid play-based program embedded into whatever the philosophy that you like best, whatever your own personal values, whether it's Montessori, Reggio, High Scope, you name it, whatever the philosophy is. And a lot of preschools now are actually a mixture of different philosophies because there's some great things in all of them. But I cover all those, the differences, the overlaps in the styles as well. In the class on overindulgence, I talk about all areas to be aware of and the ways that we can really watch overindulging our kids, but I also touch on overscheduling as one of those and what stress and strain that puts on our kids and our families and some good rules of thumb to use when scheduling activities for kids. And then of course I have the class on kids and media. I have zero to 10 and 11 plus because that's gonna change when you've got tweens and teens in your house. There's some different things to watch out for, but I cover healthy guidelines and dealing with screen time battles in that class. So. Those are really good classes if you have an interest in knowing more about these areas or you find slow parenting to be of interest to you. Those classes will actually give you research-based information on guidelines in those three key areas. So you might want to check those out. Those are at yourvillageonline.com. Okay, next up, tiger, dolphin, and jellyfish parenting. So it was hard to find any information on the origin outside of the book, Battle Hymn of the Tiger Mother by Amy Chua which is actually a great read, by the way. It's where a Chinese-American mom shares her journey and growth as she states on the cover. She says this was supposed to be a story about how Chinese parents are better at raising kids than Western ones. But instead, 
It's about a bitter clash of cultures, a fleeting taste of glory, and how I was humbled by a 13-year-old. So I'm going to dig into the term and definition of tiger mom here. A tiger mom is a strict or demanding mother who pushes her child or children to high levels of achievement, especially by using methods regarded as typical of child rearing in China and other parts of East Asia. This form of parenting does basically fall into the authoritarian style. This is parenting up to the parent's expectations with little or no input from the child. Tiger parents often have high expectations in all areas, academics, music, and potentially, but not always, sports as well. So this is a highly controlling style of parenting. What's interesting is, as I read through the book, and as well as she states right on the cover, her relationship with her daughter followed the potential pattern I mentioned last week, where children from authoritarian parenting styles can often rebel in teenage years. Not always, but sometimes they will. And I think given that this was a Chinese-American family in America, in American culture, it probably gave her child more bandwidth and more room to... Um, to push back and to talk about her needs and her wants as well. Now, back in the 1950s or in other cultures, you know, that was the overarching style that just kids did not push back. That just isn't what you did. A few of, a few of them would, a few would rebel, but it wasn't as common. Nowadays, especially in Western culture, it's, it's very common for most kids to rebel against that author, very authoritarian parenting style once they're starting to individuate and become very independent in their teenage years. Okay, so it's hard as parents because, again, I mentioned last week, we all have some of each of these styles. I definitely have some authoritarian parenting style in me as well. I have very high expectations for my kids, and sometimes I do come down on them too hard with those instead of doing it in a more warm parenting style. 90% of the time, I'm very warm, but sometimes I'm just like, I lay down the law, (laughs) and sometimes it's a little too harsh. So, you know, if we have high expectations and we can see our child's promise and talents, and and especially if you come from a culture where this is the norm, that what I say goes, you know, children are to be seen and not heard, children are to obey, it's really hard to allow your child to have input. The cultural pressure to excel is really strong in many families. Children often do not have the motivation to push themselves to such levels on their own unless they have some kind of natural or inborn drive for that particular area of interest. You might want to think of Bill Gates with his incessant reading and thirst for knowledge when he was a child. Like his parents never had to be like, you need to read. He was reading constantly, just constantly ingesting information. He he had a huge thirst for knowledge. You want to think about Taylor Swift with music. 13, 12, 13, and she just shot to fame. She had a natural talent and she had a drive and she had an interest. But, you know, parents come from a good place. They want their children to reach their full potential. They want to push them hard to excel in all areas. Now, if you've been a part of any sports, you have probably seen this in sports. Um, There's almost always a few parents in a sports team or a sports event where you can attest to the pressure that they see parents put on their kids. Although, you know, I'm sure it's pushed in academics in some families or music in other families or performance in other families. When we see our kids with this talent, when we see them excel in an area, we want to do everything we can to give them the opportunity to make sure that they excel. Now, for some parents, 
It's out of their own regrets of not having worked hard enough in whatever area it is, in their own sport, baseball, um, in school, in music, in swimming, in arts, whatever it is, in acting. And they felt like they could have been something or they could have done something with it as a career and they didn't. And they wish their parents had pushed them harder. And so they do that with their kids. They don't want their child to have those regrets and that's out of love. So that's hard. So I want to talk about the other two styles. Then I'm going to circle back around to this because you want to do this with some balance. There's a way to handle these situations in ways that are more empowering to our children. That's really what we want to do. We want to empower them to make the choices that are right for them. And I'll get to that right after a word from our sponsors. This episode is sponsored by By Heart. By Heart is an infant nutrition company whose mission is simple. Make the best formula in the world. Using the latest in breast milk science, By Heart created a clinically proven, easy-to-digest infant formula that's made with organic, grass-fed whole milk, certified clean ingredients, and features a patented protein blend that gets closest to breast milk. Our blend includes the most abundant protein found in breast milk, alpha-lac, as well as lactoferrin, the number one protein found in colostrum, along with broken down, partially hydrolyzed proteins. By Heart is an easy-to-digest formula. In addition to its patented protein blend, our formula includes prebiotics and an 80-20 whey-to-casein ratio like in early breast milk, which is tailor-made for a newborn's digestive system. By Heart is the only U.S.-made infant formula to use organic, grass-fed whole milk, not skim. Curious about By Heart? Redeem your welcome offer at byheart.com slash podcast with the code parenting for a limited time. Additional terms and conditions apply. These later years of childhood have been flying by. As a mom, I want to not just be available to my kids during these last years they have at home, but I want to feel good and have the energy I need to keep up with their schedule and my own. So my health is a top priority. Equilibria is a woman-owned wellness brand with unique science-backed products that help bring your mind and body back into harmony. You're not alone on your wellness journey. Every customer gets one-on-one support to help you meet your goals. EQ's Daily Women's Microbiome Defense is a three-in-one capsule that supports your digestive health and promotes gut barrier protection. A healthy gut positively impacts immunity, mental health, sleep, digestion, and skin health. It helps regulate digestion, immunity against bad bacteria, and improve nutrient absorption. The gut has been called the second brain because it contains more than 100 million nerve cells. It is a vitally important piece to our overall health, both physical and mental. So to make sure my gut is working at its potential, I started taking EQ's Daily Women's Microbiome Defense to improve my digestion and nutrition absorption, boost my overall immune health, and help with sleep and stress as a bonus. Head to myeq.com and use code PARENTING for 15% off Equilibria's microbiome defense and much more. That's myeq.com and use code PARENTING at checkout for 15% off site-wide today. Now that we're back, I'm going to get more into the tiger, dolphin, and jellyfish parenting styles. So as a response to the tiger mother phenomenon in the book, Shimi Kang wrote a book called The Dolphin Way, A Parent's Guide to Raising Motivated Kids Without Turning Into a Tiger. She also coined the term jellyfish parent. These fall right in line with the original styles. Tigers are the authoritarian parenting. 
Dolphins are the democratic style and jellyfish are the indulgent or permissive parents because they have no spine. Jellyfish have no spine. So it's parents who are kind of bowled over by their kids and let their kids do and have what they want and don't set boundaries. So I want to make these connections where I swing back around to how I recommend and how I've handled the experiences of when your children are showing a particular talent but they're just not feeling it and they're just really struggling to, you know, they're just not having the, finding the joy in it anymore. So if you've been listening to me for a while, you also know that I have two kids who showed a ton of promise in swimming. My older sw- son swam from ages six to eight. He took a break for a year and a half and then went back from nine and a half to 12 by his very own choice. And actually I was so surprised when he said he wanted to go back to swimming. I asked him repeatedly for a month if he was sure he wanted to go back to swimming, but he did. He was very sure he wanted to go back. So he had made all kinds of championship cuts, junior Olympics, Western age group championships, coastal championships, every single year, every single age group, he was making age group cuts from the very beginning. And he went to championship meets and was placing in those meets every single age group. But at 12, he was just done. Swimming is a year-round sport, and they push kids hard. One and a half to two hour practices in the pool, five to six days a week for years on end. There's a break in the summer for like two weeks. So no wonder kids burn out on this sport. And my daughter was the same. She quit several times, and then when we moved... To San Diego, she was stared at up again, then quit again. She came out in tears one day from practice, and I'm like, we're done. It was too much. Then she had a new BFF from the second day of school who was on a swim team, and she decided she wanted to join. Again, I was shocked. I'm like, are you sure about this? She did. She wanted to join. She went. She did it. She did great. At the second swim meet she went to, at 10 years old, She bested her brother's 100 freestyle time by five seconds that he set when he was 12. (laughs) And then she wanted to quit. She didn't like the practices. She didn't like the meets. She wasn't enjoying any of it. So here's my stance. As a professional and as a mom, and as someone who feels like we all know ourselves better than anyone else, and that means our kids know themselves better than we know them, I had to listen to my kids. I have to listen to them. We would have several conversations about quitting depending on what was happening. If they're just like, oh, I'm bored, I'm tired of this, it's not fun, I don't wanna do this. We have some conversations about it because I wanna make sure, because my older son would sometimes go, I don't know, I don't know, because we'd talk about the years that he put into it. We'd talk about that he really does have a natural talent for it. I'm like, I just want to make sure this is really what you want, that you're really done. And he would go, I don't know. I don't know. I'm not sure. And I'd say, well, let's just take it week by week. I'm not going to keep pushing you and say you have to stay through the season. We'll take it week by week. Sometimes I would have them finish out the month that I paid for. I'm like, let's just finish out the month, finish out the commitment. You know, we want to let the team know that we're leaving, especially once they've been in it for a little while. Because the biggest thing is they know deep down what the right decision is for them. And I would let them make it once I would give them the tools and the ways to think about it, to think through it, about what they wanted, what their goals were. So my rule is for my kids is they have to do some physical activity. This is a lifestyle. It's part of maintaining the body, staying fit, feeling good, feeling happy, 
staying in a good mood, all those endorphins, they're really important for our life balance and staying in a good mood and working through problems. I work through a lot of problems when I exercise. When I'm running or I'm swimming, I'm thinking in my mind through some problems. And it is just a really important part of maintenance for life maintenance. So, But I don't care what it is. I'd rather they find a sport they love than having to strong arm them every time it's time to go to practice. So right now, Carter plays tennis, and he's about to start boys volleyball in the school, on the school team when it starts up next month. Taylor is a very talented equestrian and also a surfer. She rides her horse three times a week, and she's about to go to surf camp for her spring break, and she'll do some in the summer as well. And then I'll help support her with that if it's something she wants to keep doing. We'll get her her own board. We'll take her down to the beach and let her practice, preferably with someone who can go out with her because I'm not going to do that. (laughs) I could probably swim out there with her, but I don't surf. So I'm happy that they're loving their activities and they're getting physical exercise and that I'm not having to deal with any power struggles over going to practice. So it's a win-win. So now we're going to talk about quickly just touch on the more controversial style of attachment parenting. The origins and contributors of this style are a bit convoluted, so I'm going to simplify it a lot. I'm not going to talk about the very beginning, where it started, who it started with, who added to it, when and how. I'm just going to talk about in the 80s and 90s, the most influential person, although again, not the first contributor, was Dr. William Sears, who helped this style begin its quick rise in popularity in the mid-90s. I believe it hit its peak in the early 2010s and has since been on the decline, but I couldn't find anything to support that one way or the other. I just haven't heard nearly as much about it lately as I did back then, but I know that there is a decent following for it. There's an online, there's a group or a club, it's not a club, but there's some type of group or um, association for it. But Dr. Sears was also the first to make the connection between attachment parenting and attachment theory, which I think gave it a lot more validity than it had had before, but he did so after the tenets of attachment parenting were already defined, after these principles were defined. So it really wasn't based initially off of attachment theory, but it does have some overlap. So I'm going to talk about attachment theory, then I'm going to talk about where attachment parenting does and does not overlap with attachment theory. So attachment theory was proposed by John Bowlby in the 1950s. It states that an infant needs to develop a relationship with at least one primary caregiver for social and emotional development to occur normally. Attachment theory explains how much of the parent's relationship with the child influences development. Attachment does absolutely set the stage for all future development, and studies show that this is the foundation for development. So that's why in those early days of bringing our baby home, we're doing a lot of attachment. We're just really connecting with our baby. So... We're going to talk about this a little bit more. Just a few benefits of a securely securely attached human, because it really follows us through life, is it lays the foundation, this is in early childhood, for strong social and academic skills. They're better self-soothers. They obey verbal requests more easily by 21 months. Because they're more attached to their caregiver, there's more uh, mutual respect happening there. There's more creative problem solving, more persistent problem solving by 24 months. So... However, if you are a relatively consistent and sensitive, soothing and loving caregiver, you will build this attachment. It's really a natural occurrence. Parents who are consistent enough will end up with a securely attached baby. They are biologically set up to attach. It is a survival mechanism. 
They mirror our facial expressions. They smile early on because this builds that bonding process and take, took an inventory of all things that build attachment. This is a good thing. While it has some overlap with attachment theory, it really takes the research and it runs amok with it, meaning it takes a lot of liberties about how available a caregiver needs to be in order to form attachment that's just simply untrue. And I also wanna talk a minute here about high needs babies, because if you have a high needs baby, that attachment, they are actually at more at risk for attachment problems because they're very difficult babies. My first baby was a high needs baby. They want you 24 seven and it's very exhausting. So putting a baby down to go to the bathroom or go make a sandwich and they're crying the minute you put them down. That was my oldest. And you feel so guilty because you're leaving them to cry for two minutes while you go to the bathroom very quickly and try to wash your hands and run back and get them. So this is where attachment parenting really goes too far because we don't want parents feeling guilty about having to take care of their own needs, like eat or go to the bathroom. It's okay to leave your baby to cry for a few minutes if you need to take care of something, if you need to do something, if you can't quite get to them right away, they are going to be okay. If you are there relatively consistently most of the time, if you are sensitive, if you come to them and you're like, it's okay and you're very cooing and soothing and you feed them and you change them and you do what you need to do and you hold them, they're absolutely going to form a very secure attachment. We don't have to stop them from crying every moment, every second of the day. I remember driving in the car, like even just going to the pediatrician and he's in the back screaming his head off the entire five minute drive to the pediatrician. And I would get so stressed because I, I had read some of the attachment parenting and it was very popular then. And I was like, oh no, my baby's crying. I'm leaving my baby to cry. And I realized I'm like, Erin, you have to get to the doctor's office. He needs to have his checkup. He will be okay. You know, and I had to, I had to realize that it was okay for him to lay and sit in the back of the car and cry, but it did keep me home. I was not able to go out and do a lot of things with him to get out and see other people. And it was very isolating. So if you have a baby or you had a baby like this, or you went through this experience, you'll know exactly what I'm talking about, how stressful that is. And to know that it is okay to put your baby down. It's okay to take a few minutes. And actually in the class, um, it's in the temperament class because there's four or five temperamental traits that if your baby is high or low in those actually um, are part of the high needs baby. And I talk about how to support that and how to get through that as a parent. If you have a high needs baby or a high needs toddler, how you can do that without the guilt. So you might want to check out that temperament class. It's at the end of it, but you probably want to watch those five temperament traits. There's nine temperament traits I cover in that class and all the ways to support your children in them. But the high needs baby, it has four or five of those very intensely. And so it makes for it for a lot to deal with. And so learning about those temperamental traits, how to work with those, and then learn about particularly about the high needs baby or toddler and how to work with that can relieve a lot of stress and um, for parenting those high needs kids. And they do grow out of it. That's the other good thing with knowing how to work through that, knowing how to support that. They do grow out of it. They become very independent, really amazing people. My, as you all know from listening, my 13 year old now is very mature, very independent, is getting straight A's in school. I don't have to even talk to him about school. He just does it all on his own. So, and in a lot of other ways, takes care of a lot of his own needs, gets himself ready, gets up in the morning, gets his shower. Like they're amazing, but you got to get through those first years and help support them through that. 
in ways that are helping them become more independent and they will become incredible kids who are so easy to parent once they're older. Okay, so there are, I can't remember. I'm only gonna mention, I only mentioned a few here because I can't remember them all. There's seven to nine tenets of attachment parenting. And these are all wonderful things to do with your babies, with your toddlers. However, it doesn't need to be done to the extent that attachment parenting advocates for because it can really leave the parents stressed out and overwhelmed and feeling like they're not up to the task, which is how I felt. The bar is set really high and it can make parents feel really inadequate, leave them exhausted, which is just not good for the bonding and the relationship. It can lead to resentment for the parent on the part of the child, which we don't want to build resentment. So allowing some more room for the parent to have a little bit of room for themselves to be like, I just need to go to the bathroom, make a sandwich and not feel guilty about that. I just need to go in the other room for a minute. I need to hand my baby off to someone else, whatever that is, and relieve some stress and not feel like you have to be available to this degree. So just for a few, birth bonding, baby wearing, bed sharing, extended breastfeeding are just, what did I name there? Four of the seven to nine, I can't remember, um, tenants. So as you can see, that can be a lot. So birth bonding, it's great. It's wonderful, big advocate for it. But you know, if you have a C-section, um, you don't get to hold your baby immediately. A lot of times they want to put you back together. They want to clean up your baby. Um, if it takes a few minutes before you get to hold your baby, I know it's, it's really hard. I was laying there. I had the same thing. I'm laying there and I'm just waiting for them to bring my baby. I wanted to hold him so badly. Um, but you know, it's okay. It'll be okay. It, I think I didn't get to see him. I did get to see him right away. I'm trying to think, but you know, they took a few minutes to clean him up before they gave him to me. Um, baby wearing is great. I loved baby wearing, but if your back is killing you, you know, when you're, when you're home during those first weeks with baby and you've got to throw some laundry in, you've got to, you know, take care of some lunch. You got to put baby down. That's fine. I have some parents who they can't carry baby at all. They have a really bad back and they just can't. But if you're sitting and holding baby, attachment is going to happen. Extended breastfeeding is another one that's really hard for some parents. Um, some parents can't breastfeed at all. And we don't want to make, I don't want to make anybody feel guilty for not being able to breastfeed for whatever reason. I have moms who have had breast cancer and they had to have their breasts taken and they were not able to breastfeed their baby. There's absolutely no shame in that. We all need to do what we need to do and baby will still bond and you'll have an amazing relationship with your child. So some of the criticism for this includes the increased risk of bed sharing and SIDS. And these are from the doctor pediatrician community. They can lead to overstressed parents and overdependent children, especially when taken to the extreme. The scientific basis, as I've mentioned, or I've really alluded to, is unfounded. So for parents, and particularly for mothers, attachment parenting is more strenuous and demanding than most other present-day ways of parenting, and yet research does not support that the attachment or outcomes are any more favorable for those children from attachment parenting than those from more moderate forms of connected parenting. And so there have been studies done on this, and they have not been able to find any differences. So this is a really big and deep topic, talking about attachment, attachment styles, attachment parenting. Um, obviously, I didn't even mention all of the tenets of it, the ins and outs and the differences. But the main takeaway I want 
um, you to have here is that if your relatively responsive caregiver who responds to your baby's cues for hunger, for connection, for changing, whatever they need within a reasonable time frame, and especially during the first six weeks, those first six weeks to three months is when we're super attuned to baby and we are responding pretty much 24 seven. Your baby will attach easily as it's a natural human survival process. Babies will begin to self-regulate more easily on their own throughout infancy if you have that first six weeks of just being readily available. Another term you'll hear today, I'm gonna to touch on really quickly, positive parenting. This is a pretty much the democratic parenting style with a different name. And obviously this is what I advocate for, what I teach, what I help parents, what I coach them with. But what I also do is I really dig into helping parents understand and parent to the differences of each child, guiding them to reach their individual potential of each child. Because each child is just gonna have different needs. So we help them stretch and rise up in areas where they struggle, but also give lots of opportunities to discover and build on their strengths. So the overarching foundation of our parenting is positive parenting, connected parenting, democratic parenting, dolphin parenting, whatever you wanna call it. But then we're also going to parent to our individual child in addition, help them connect with their own true selves to reach their own individual potential. Okay, so I know we covered a lot today. I hope it was really helpful. I find all this information really interesting, really fascinating, and really helpful in setting a foundation for our parenting. If you have any questions, comments about what we covered today, anything you'd like to hear, please send an email to podcast at yourvillageonline.com. If you would like to join us in our My Parenting community, you can see the website, yourvillageonline.com. Come join the memberships. We do our parent chats. We talk about these issues. We talk about how to scaffold our kids. We talk about how to teach our kids to advocate for themselves, how to really connect with their true personalities and become independent, respectful, cooperative, amazing kids, and really dig into their own talents that they're going to bring to the world. Thanks so much for listening. See you next week. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Save big on Brunch for Mom, all in the Kroger app. Get half gallons of delicious Kroger milk for $1.29 each. Then get flavorful Tyson Natural Boneless Chicken Breasts for two forty nine dollars a pound, all with your card and a digital coupon. Shop these deals at your local Kroger today. Or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details.